this is the one asset in modern history where average people have had a shot at it, you know, before companies and before hedge funds and before billionaires. That that window may be ending. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the Bitcoin Mecca of the world. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a long overdue interview with Andy Edstrom, but we're not going to be discussing what we originally planned. No, we are going to be discussing the micro strategy moonshot. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, today we are kicking off with Casa who are, without doubt, the very best in Bitcoin security. Now, security was something I hadn't really dealt with in my first couple of years of Bitcoin. I had a hardware wallet, you know, I backed up my private seed, but I was worried. I was worried that something quite bad would happen. You hear all these stories of people losing all their Bitcoin, and I did not want that to happen to me. So I reached out to Nick Newman, the CEO of Castle, and I was like, Nick, come on, man. Let's get this sorted. So I signed up. I became a Casa Platinum customer, and I'm now protected from hackers. Most importantly, my own stupid mistakes, any kind of in-person attack, device failure, and so much more. And with Bitcoin on such a run this year, you really want to consider getting your security sorted. And look, with Casa, they have a product for every type of Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that only costs $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, what I have, you get their three or five multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders. That also comes at great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. That includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. And you can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, today, we're going to talk about sportsbet.io the best place online for gaming, especially if you're a Bitcoiner, because they support Bitcoin. They love Bitcoin. They love it so much, they put a Bitcoin logo on the front of the Southampton shirt. Billions of people around the world watching Premier League football, when they're watching Southampton, they see a Bitcoin logo. I'm looking forward to getting down to the ground, hopefully to watch Liverpool play them, hopefully to watch Liverpool smash them. Now with Sportsbet, they have every market you could possibly be interested in, from Premier League to US Sports. And for new customers, they have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. And that is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And lastly, let's take a look at Otis. Now, Otis is an investment platform that makes it possible for almost anyone to invest in shares of cultural assets. From contemporary art to rare collectibles, sports cars, memorabilia, sneakers, comics, and so much more. And this is how it works. You download the app and sign up, which is free. New cultural assets are dropped in the app weekly for you to buy shares in, and you can also buy shares of pass drops from other Otis members. And you can earn a potential return if Otis sells the underlying asset for more than the item was dropped at, or by sending shares to other Otis members on Otis's trading platform. I signed up to check out their cool sneaker investments because I am a sneaker collector, like their 1985 Air Jordan 1 collection, but also being a lover of modern art, it was great to see some Banksy work up there too. Right now, Otis is offering a free investment share to listeners of my show. All you have to do is go to withotis.com forward slash WBD and sign up to get your first share free when you fund your account. That is withotis.com forward slash WBD. Okay, so onto the show today, and I am finally joined by Andy Edstrom, something I've wanted to do for a long time. I actually wanted to get him on to discuss his book, Why Buy Bitcoin? 
But with the recent news that MycoStrategy is about to raise another $550 million to buy even more Bitcoin, a strategy which Andy predicted or suggested, I had to get them on the show to discuss this. So Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy have killed it this year. Not only have they paved the way for other corporations to add Bitcoin to their treasuries, but they had the real conviction of putting in nearly half a billion dollars. And so far, that conviction has paid off. The Bitcoin they invested is now worth $750 million. Pretty crazy, right? I think all Bitcoiners think they need more Bitcoin. And Michael Saylor is no exception. Not happy with that. They are looking to raise this additional $550 million to buy loads more Bitcoin. What a badass. So I wasn't 100% sure how this works and what it means exactly. So I asked Andy to come on the show and explain it to me and to you. So I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, check out my other show, Defiance. Part 5 of Chaos is out. That's called Echo Chambers. Also, loads of plans for 2021. Working on that right now. Outside of that, have a great weekend. Love you all and see you all next week. Andy, we finally got this tech shit working. How are you? I'm great, Peter. Uh, haven't had to, to spend a half an hour, you know, troubleshooting before, but we're on and it's awesome to be with you. Um, really looking forward to this. Well, it's long overdue. We were meant to do it a long time ago and we sh- we're going to do this again because I do want to talk about the topic of your book, but we got something a little bit more pressing to get into because Michael Saylor has been doing what Michael Saylor does and turning upside down the world of bitcoin and i didn't realize when that happened like somebody at point and maybe preston tweeted it out like a few people were like yep this is what andy said andy predicted this andy said this can happen so i want to go into this but you know what you know what my show is like i'm going to want to keep it simple i want you to explain all the concepts that people don't understand but take me back because you kind of like you had this idea you kind of had this concept or something they could do where did that come from Yeah. I mean, look, I think it came from personal experience, right? I'm no smarter than anyone else out there, but I started my career on the high yield bond desk at Goldman Sachs and the convertible bond desk, by the way, sat right next to mine. So it was like, you know, whatever, 10 of us on the, on the trading desk effectively with offices around. And then the convert guys were nearby. So I started in corporate finance and I'm familiar with that market. And it just, you know, it pop, the idea popped into my head because everyone was saying, oh, this is such an aggressive move. Can't believe he's spending all his balance sheet cash on Bitcoin. And then I was thinking, yeah, but the company has no debt. So like, why not come over the top, <laughs> issue some debt and buy even more Bitcoin? And as it turned out, you know, that's uh, that's the way it happened. Now, the 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 uh, sort of the example that I tweeted out and that I talked about on the Swan Signal episode with Preston was just a straight up high yield bond deal. And the framework or the idea I just put out there was, you know, what if they did a couple hundred million, they borrowed a couple hundred million dollars in the bond market, maybe a 5% interest rate. You know, that would be $10 million of annual interest expense, which they could easily cover because they've got, you know, 30 to 50 million of free cash flow. And so as it turned out, they went to the convertible bond market and they did a much larger deal. <laughs> so I'm happy to go into the details. I mean, I'll turn it back to you uh, for the moment. But uh, but yeah, lots to say about that. Okay, so me as somebody who doesn't understand this stuff, I would say, okay, the only flaw in this strategy is if Bitcoin price doesn't go up. If the Bitcoin price halved, they would still owe $200 million 
plus their interest. Say it was four hundred million, they don't. So that's kind of risky. What happens at the end of the like the the period of the bond? They would be due a two hundred yeah. million de- debt, and they wouldn't be able to pay it. Yeah, and let's talk about the structure a little bit because I think it's it's useful and interesting. So, standard maturity in the convertible bond market is five years. And that's the deal they did. So they did a five-year maturity. Now, it's interesting that that's the standard because that's very convenient, in my opinion, if you're buying Bitcoin. What's interesting about five years? You get through a halving. Exactly. You get through a halving. And not only yeah. that, but it's you know we're right in that sweet spot of the cycle, having just come through the halving. As you know well, usually that results in a massive bull market in the next 12 to 18 months. So yeah, he has bought himself, you know, a full having plus hopefully the bear market, you know, this round and the next round. So, you know, my original thought was that they would do an even longer maturity, which would be standard if it had been, you know, just a standard bond deal rather than a convertible deal. But I think the 5-year maturity sets them up really nicely exactly to 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 capture this bull market and possibly the next one. But to your point about, you know, how, how can this go wrong? Yeah, of course, if, if uh, Bitcoin doesn't perform, uh, you know, this is problematic potentially. But, but remember, so one thing about the convertible bond market, and we can get into the structure if you'd like, is because there's an equity component to investors, right? You get the debt component. The debt is usually more than half of the total value. So if you think about a convertible bond, you know, a $100 convertible bond is maybe like, 70% debt and 30% equity effectively because there's an embedded stock call option. Well, because uh, hold the- on, right, right, right. Look, look, we're gonna we're gonna have to go through this because you're we'll you're, okay. you're, you're talking about things like like I, I know it. Let's go step by step and then like real step by step. Sure. Okay. So when you say it's part equity, part debt, explain what's going on there. So say it's for just let's go with the, let's let's say it was a hundred million just for, for the sake of this. Yeah. 70% is debt, so they owe 70 million back, and what, 30 is converted into equity? Yeah, 30 has the option to convert into equity. So how it actually works as an investor, let's say I'm an investor, I'm saying, okay, yeah. Michael Saylor wants to raise money. Do I want to write him a check or do I not want to write him a check? How do I think about the instrument that I get for the cash that I'm giving him? Well, mm-hmm. I get a bond, okay, and it has a maturity, and the bond is senior to the stock. So if, mm-hmm. you know, if it all goes belly up, then the equity gets paid after the debt. So I have a debt claim that gets paid first in bankruptcy, right, before the equity. So that's item 1. The equity piece is actually in the form of a call option. And they did a pretty standard strategy which is the embedded call option is based on a higher stock price. So it only it only becomes valuable if the stock goes up by at least 37%. This is common in the convertible bond market. The idea is, well, if the stock doesn't go up, then you're just going to get your money back. You know, you, you lend them the money, you got paid your interest along the way, then it matures and you get your money back. And it doesn't work out that great because the interest rate tends to be pretty low on these things. So the way things work out well as an investor in a convertible bond is if the stock goes up by a lot, then you get some participation uh, in that upside. And as you, as right, you, so you 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 can make the choice to claim that exactly. You can make the, and that's literally yeah. the conversion option 
And the way the math works is if the stock doesn't go up, then you don't convert and you just, you know, get your principal back at maturity of the bond. But if the stock does go up enough, then you convert into shares and you make more money. But what if the stock doesn't go up and they can't pay back the loan? Yeah, well, that's then you then you're in a then you're in a bankruptcy or a, I mean, at minimum, you're in a default situation, right? So mm-hmm. so there's two ways that can work, as I think you alluded to. The one is, can they even cover the interest expense, right? In other words, it's like, can you cover, are you making enough income to pay your mortgage, right? To pay that monthly interest. Okay. Now the good news for MicroStrategy about the way they've structured this is the interest rate is under 1%, right? It's 0.75%. So even on the you know $550 million deal that they did, they announced 400, then they upsized to 550, and there's an option for investors to, to fund an, another 100 million. Even at those numbers, you're only talking about a few million bucks annually in interest. The company generates at least 30 million of cash flow, so that's easy to cover the interest. But you asked the right question, which is, Oh, but what if what if they can't pay it back in five years when it matures? Now, I would argue that five years of free cash flow, you know, five times 30 million is at least 150 million, probably more, but that won't cover, that likely won't cover, uh, you know, the maturity because it's hundreds of millions depending on the ultimate size of the deal. Now, there are some features in the bond. There's a call feature, there's a put feature. These are complications and they're not fully disclosed. But um, I'll leave it there. Well, so, so this to me, this looks like a moonshot, right? This is okay. I put four hundred and fifty million dollars already in of MicroStrategy money. I've put whatever it was of his own, a couple hundred million, and then another fifty million. Right? I have absolute conviction and personal belief, but we just don't know. Yes, we all believe every halving cycle is like the last one; it will grow, and it's certainly the indications are great, but we still don't know. Because one of the things that's going to happen over the next probably cycle is the realization of what this is from the state. Yes, the state already realizes there's certain you know growing desire for regulation. We've seen that in the US. We don't think it'll be banned. But let's just hypothetically speaking, let's just for the sake, let's game this out. Let's just say there are regulatory issues. Let's say there is some big regulatory issue. And say the price crashes, just say for some reason the price is $14,000, you know. The only way they can pay off this debt, unless MicroStrategy as a business is outperformed, they would have to sell Bitcoin to pay off the debt, right? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, and by the way, it's funny that you say the price crashes to 14k. I know, that I know. That doesn't qualify as a price crash to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, if the price of Bitcoin goes down, I would agree that as structured, they're not likely to have generated enough cash flow to pay down the debt. Now, here's, let me, let me, I think this is crucial. Um, it's actually one of the topics that I cover in my book, but I'll try to keep it short. Yeah. There's, you know, there's this economist named Hyman Minsky who was completely unknown, okay, until the global financial crisis. And he had a framework which talked about debt. And he talked about hedge debt, three categories, hedge debt, speculative debt, Ponzi debt. Okay. Hedge debt, by his definition, is the kind of debt that you can pay off just generating cash flow before the maturity of the debt. 
So this type of debt doesn't qualify, right? There's not enough cash flow. You know, the, the second category of debt assumes that you can refinance later. I would argue that even if Bitcoin underperforms, I'm assuming it doesn't go to zero, but let's say it underperforms, you know, the price goes down. I would argue that MicroStrategy still has a business intelligence software, you know, recurring revenue business that is financeable. This is mm -hmm. a real business. It generates cash flow on a recurring basis. It may not be growing much, but you know, it's still there and it's still a, a pretty decent business. So somebody will lend MicroStrategy money when this thing matures, I would argue, on the basis of the cash generating power of the business itself. Right. Okay. Okay. It, okay. So they would likely get out of that situation because the, the other thing is when it matures, so say it's, you know, matures in five years, the way they're possibly going to have to pay off the debt is, you know, unless they've generated a huge amount of cash to cover it, they'd likely have to sell out part of the Bitcoin position. Yes. Agreed. agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So if they can't get financed, right, if nobody will lend the money. To refinance. Well, I, so I, yeah, because the other situation is that they refinance it based on them owning a huge amount of Bitcoin and you know, being quite trusted. And we actually, we don't actually know the situation of the dollar at that point. We, we, you know, we, yeah, that's true. That. We don't know that. that. That's true. But it does feel like a moonshot. Look, I, I agree. I mean, he has made it very clear that he is, that he is a Bitcoin bull, 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 and that... He's willing to bet the company on it because, you know, he, he came out with the news that he was going to buy Bitcoin. Then he did the tender offer to take out the shareholders that didn't want to be involved in this. Mm -hmm. And he came over the top, right, and bought more Bitcoin. And now he's coming again, raising debt plus equity to buy even more and then upsizing the deal. So, yeah, there's no question. I mean, he's he's all in. He believes in this thing. And one of the interesting things is he is sending a message to other companies about things they sh should do, could do, and could consider. Um, he's close to already even doubled the original investment. You know, so he's sending a message to the market. Oh, by the way, that four hundred twenty-five million dollars we put in is now worth seven hundred fifty million or whatever. We just did that in three months. A lot of other companies must be looking, going, "Holy shit!" And now he's showing this alternative strategy of raising money to put more into Bitcoin. Like to be the first to do it, to incentivize a number of other companies to at least consider this, I think it's a calculated moonshot. Oh, absolutely. He he started the clock. It's no accident that he's been on your show, two episodes, I think you did. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's been all over the podcast. He's been going on, you know, the basically mainstream media doing conference appearances. I mean, it's, you know, he's all over the place promoting it. And even just to underscore his confidence here, what you said is absolutely correct. The two initial purchases that he made are already very profitable because price has gone up. But his last purchase was it was over 19k, right? The last purchase was I think 50 million. Yeah, it's just and a small amount. It's just a small amount. But what he's telling you is like, look, whatever price I'm paying, like whether it was 11, you know, or 11 and a half or 19, this thing is still cheap. I'm going to keep, you know, plowing money into this thing. I'm going to raise money to buy more. Yeah, he is he is he's moving hard into this thing. No question. He's a, and he doesn't he doesn't seem too price sensitive, right? <laughs> he seems like he's going to bid, he's going to pay 
He's going to pay whatever the market is offering him. And I don't know what his you know, maximum purchase price is. Maybe we'll find out. He's a multi-million dollar cost averaging. <laughs> he is. I like he is that. Going for it. All right. So listen, a couple of things that stood out to me. Okay. Firstly, when it first was announced, the 400 million, um, I saw some of the like commentary of expected interest rate. And then within 48 hours, it was upsized to $550 million, the interest rate of 0.75%, which surprised some people. And also the fact that it's essentially oversubscribed, which says to me a couple of things, and I'm way out of my depth here, but the deal was pretty much done, or the majority of the deal was pretty much done in advance. So it kind of had me thinking two things. It sounds like there's somebody who wants to invest in Bitcoin, can't traditionally, therefore this is a vehicle for them to do it. The whole micro strategy is an ETF thing. So we'll come to that. And well, I put the other thing, my second thing here was it's a pretty confident bet on Bitcoin. We've already covered that. But let's let's go back a step. Just to, some people listening will have heard about ETFs, but um, won't really know what they are. Just explain what an ETF is. Sure. ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. And in the world of financial markets, it's somewhat new. I mean, I think that structure is only about 20 years old. And what it does is it used to be that if an investor wanted a diversified portfolio of assets, let's say stocks, they could either buy them individually, right? And they would pay a commission to buy each one of those stocks, right? You want to buy some Netflix stock, you want to buy some Apple stock, you want to buy some IBM, you got to do each of those trades. So the solution to that was the mutual fund, which is, you know, I don't know, 60 years old or something. But there are problems with mutual funds. Mutual funds only settle transactions with the investors at the end of the day. So if you want to invest in a mutual fund, you buy it at the end of the day based on the assets that are in the fund. And you can't get in and out over the course of a day. You can't trade in and out. The ETF solved this problem. So the ETF is similar to a mutual fund. It owns a basket of assets generally. Although not all do, <laughs> the gold ETF, right, just owns gold and we'll get to Bitcoin. But it, it creates this fund vehicle whereby you can sell or buy over the course of the trading day rather than just uh, getting in after hours, basically based on the net asset value of the fund at one point in the day. I'd say okay. that's the main thing. Right. Okay. So, but the ETF allows certain companies to invest in Bitcoin who can't go out and just buy the asset. What? Why is that? What is that scenario? Yeah. So I think, and I think a good precedent for this is some of the commodities. So like gold, gold is the classic case, right? It used to be that to buy gold was a pain. I mean, you could buy mutual funds that held gold mining stocks. If you wanted to own actual gold, you either had to you know, contract with a private vaulting service or you had to go buy the, you know, buy the bullion or buy the coins and store them yourself, right? Or put them in the bank in a safe deposit box. The ETF created a structure whereby there is gold held in vaults, you know, like underground in London, for example, is a major uh, location for gold storage. And then you have this, yeah, you have this fund structure that is a claim on that gold. That's the gold ETF. And that product is, has been hugely successful, even more so, you know, recently since the money printer has been going. Brrr. But the idea for Bitcoin is, oh, 
if we have one for gold, you know, we have one for copper and we have one for oil and various other commodities, why not Bitcoin? And I actually think that is coming. I think there's a couple interesting scenarios to think about with MicroStrategy. One thing that's done gen generally in corporate finance is this concept of a tax-free spinoff. So you can have a company, maybe it has, let's say, two or three divisions or two or three businesses held under the same holding structure, and the, co and the holding company uh, trades publicly. If the company wants to divest, wants to get rid of one of those businesses or one of those assets, they can sell it outright, but often that results in capital gains tax at the corporate level. This other way to manage it is do a tax-free spinoff. And basically, you know, you got the existing stock. It says, okay, this asset, this business or company or whatever that we don't want, we spin it off as its own ticker. It'll trade on the stock market and there's no tax effect for that. Now, it's not obvious to me why that couldn't happen with MicroStrategy at some, you know, at some point where you've got the cash flowing software services, you know, business intelligence business. And at some point, you've got enough Bitcoin, right, on the balance sheet that he just spins off the Bitcoin piece. He personally and all shareholders will own their, you know, their equal shares, their pro rata shares of both those entities. And I don't know, now you've got a business that's just a holding company for Bitcoin. Would the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, would the SEC object to that? I don't know. We might find out. Well, so that's on my list of questions because... It feels like so the company that's been kind of uh, raised here is Rentec, right? They forex mm. their position before. Was it before the announcement? I did, uh, yeah, I'm not sure actually. Yeah. I haven't been following Rentec. So they forex their position, but whether it's them or somebody else, they this it clearly looks like somebody wanted this deal to happen. This is a way for them to get uh, exposure to Bitcoin via MicroStrategy yeah. micro share price. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I think the way to think about what's going on with these Bitcoin proxy companies, because mm -hmm. MicroStrategy is not the only one, right? You go to you go to BitcoinTreasuries.org, um, MBK's website, and you can see other, let, most of these things are, are quote unquote crypto companies, right? Not that many of them are just focused on Bitcoin, but they do have Bitcoin on their balance sheets and they are in businesses, let's say, that involve Bitcoin. And these stocks have been going bananas, right? I mean, sure, Bitcoin, you know, has gone from 12K, you know, to 18K recently. But these stocks have gone, a lot of them have doubled or more. And so it's apparent that somebody in the market wants or needs Bitcoin exposure mm -hmm. and hasn't got set up yet to buy Bitcoin directly. You know, maybe they haven't done the legal work haven't done the accounting work. They haven't done their due diligence yet on the Bitcoin custodians um, and exchanges that can basically get them the exposure. That takes, as Michael Saylor indicated, you know, a period of months. And so, in the meantime, they're saying as a placeholder, yeah, I got to buy me, I got to buy me a basket of these of these proxies. I think MicroStrategy is one of those, and but it's not, you know, it's not uh, the only one. And what companies are doing, MicroStrategy is smart about this too, because the 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 stock went parabolic, basically. I can't remember if it was last Thursday or Friday. And what happens with companies is anytime the stock gets too expensive, management says, oh, we'll just dilute you. We'll issue equity, right? Like you want to buy my stock at three times the price that it was trading a couple months ago? Okay, I'll supply more, right? I will increase the supply of my stock, which in effect is what 
is what a convertible bond deal is. I mean, it's part debt, part stock. But yeah, the uh, as they have, there's an old saying in uh, in uh, in finance, which is when the ducks quack, feed them. Right? When the ducks want something, supply it, supply more. Bitcoin is this asset that has limited supply, but a stock or equity claim on Bitcoin does not have unlimited supply. Yeah. So what happens to the business intelligence business when they end up sat on? I don't know. Imagine they end up sat on like thirty, forty billion dollars of Bitcoin. Like, where's the incentive? Yeah. What? What? Uh, what? What happens there? I mean, for the company, it's like I say. You know, I'm of two minds on this. Some shareholders will will raise hackles. They'll say, you know, why? They'll ask the uh, question that I think it was Melissa Lee on CNBC asked yeah. um, Michael Saylor last week, which is, "Are you a Bitcoin company or are you a business intelligence, you know, software company?" And one can be both, but activist shareholders don't really like it when you're two of something. I would say that when, if and when Bitcoin, let's say, reaches its potential, we can talk about how to define that. <laughs> but when it's basically a more established store of value monetary asset, then it'll be normal to have it on the balance sheet. In the intervening time, I, I think most investors, you know, most analysts, most portfolio managers who run large portfolios of stocks are going to say, these are really two different things. I'd rather you split them up, right? I definitely, I definitely anticipate some activist investors going to get involved and say, you know, look, this is two different things. Split them up because some people just want to own the software business. Some people want to want to own the Bitcoin exposure. Um, I'm not saying that'll necessarily happen with MicroStrategy itself, but it's going to happen with, you know, with some of these companies that have uh, have it on the balance sheet. Now, the question of, you know, what what does the world look like, you know, when a company that used to have a billion dollar balance sheet now has, you know, 10 billion or 50 billion, as you suggested. Yeah, I mean, talk about purchasing power. Uh, if you're a if you're a smaller or medium sized business within whatever industry you're in and now you have a much larger balance sheet, maybe you buy your competitors, you know, maybe you fund uh, new products uh faster than you would have otherwise, you invest in your business, make yourself more competitive. I mean, it's very possible that these businesses that have these enhanced balance sheets from gains on Bitcoin are going to be much more formidable competitors uh, than they had been prior. Well, I guess also you can borrow, you can increase your debt against that position as well. Yes. And this is this will be really interesting too. I agree. It'll be interesting to see how the corporate bond market treats this asset. I think ultimately we will see lenders saying, okay, yes, you know, this Bitcoin asset clearly has value. It's been going up. However, I'm a lender, so I don't participate in the upside, you know, unless it's a convertible bond structure. I only have to worry about the downside. So, how much am I going to lend against this asset? What's going to be the loan to value? And that's Mm -hmm. a standard calculation with any debt market. I mean, it's the same with with your house and your mortgage, right? With a house where you're pretty sure that the value is not going to go down too much, maybe you lend 80% you know, of, the, of the value. I think with Bitcoin, which is less volatile than it used to be, but still pretty volatile, the loan to value is going to be much lower. Um, we're seeing that right now in the, you know, in the personal loan space. It's um, like 50, you know, 50%, like, isn't it? Like BlockFi and do like 50% yeah, LTV? Exactly. But that, does and that also... I was going to say, I wonder if therefore that means they will take custody of the Bitcoin to issue the loan the way the likes of BlockFi do. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think you could see 
I think you could see two potential structures. One is what you described, which is, yeah, the, basically that the lender has right to liquidate. I think more likely in the corporate market, you're not going to see that. You're going to say lenders, or you're going to say companies just say, look, you know, we're in control of the keys, you know, pick the loan to value that you're comfortable with. And maybe it's lower, you know, maybe it's not yeah. 50%, maybe it's 20% um, or 30%. Um, I think that's more likely the way it goes. But on the other hand, who knows? Maybe we'll see both structures in the market. That would be interesting. Yeah. Well, I, the other thing is, I, I'm like wondering what this is doing to other companies. Like, there's got to be a lot of companies looking in and seeing this and thinking, we need to be getting in on this. There's got to yeah. be. I, and some people, some people have made statements, right? Like Jeff Booth has outright said, you know, I'm on a bunch of boards and people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. Now, they may be more likely to be talking about it because Jeff Booth understands Bitcoin and has for a long time and has, you know, been whispering in their ear for a while. But yeah, whatever, whatever the reported number of board level discussions that are going on right now, you know that the actual number is some multiple of that. Um, it, it's unknowable what that is. But yeah, there's some percentage, there's some percentage of companies that are thinking about this. And then and then you start to think of, well, what's the scale of the bid under Bitcoin that's needed to support it? Because MicroStrategy itself, you know, is buying, I don't know, 2% of the, uh, you know, the 900 Bitcoins that are getting minted every day, let's say roughly. Mm -hmm. um, how many more companies do you need to start sucking up, you know, the entire, uh, the entire flow, the entire supply, plus you've got, you know, the, the retail coming in via PayPal, via Square, and and the Bitcoin trust continuing to hoover up more supply makes you think could be an interesting uh, could be interesting next year. Next up, I talk to Andy more about this micro strategy moonshot. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, let's kick off. We're Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin, and the only place I always use for buying and selling my Bitcoin. So why is that, Pete? Okay, firstly, they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. And as I always say, security is really important to me. They also have the best in class in customer service. So if you have any issue, whatever it is, whoever you are, wherever you are, they're going to get that shit fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app. So if you want to start trading Bitcoin on the go, if you're out for a walk, if you're sat on a train, if you're a passenger in a car and you think, I want more Bitcoin, you can use that. But with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to train Bitcoin and you can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. That's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And lastly today, and never least, are my good friends over at BlockFi. And did you hear their massive announcement? Yes, BlockFi is about to launch a Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card in early 2021. I have been so excited about this. So check this out. Card users can earn a market-leading 1.5% rewards in Bitcoin on all card purchases. There is a $200 annual fee, but you get a $250 bonus in Bitcoin after spending $3,000 in the first three months. So with the BlockFi card, you can stack sats with all your card purchases. The waitlist registration is now open to all BlockFi clients. If you want to join the priority waiting list, you just need to open up a BlockFi account. 
The public waiting list is slated to open in early January. So if you are interested in checking this out and BlockFi, do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. What we're really seeing right now is the it's like the early stages of the FOMO from 2017, yet it's being driven by billionaires, companies, and hedge funds. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, I'm excited for it, and, and I'm also sad about it, because when you think about the retail wave, and you think about this is the one asset in modern history where average people have had a shot at it, you know, before companies and before hedge funds and before billionaires and corporates, that that window may be ending, right? This may be the end of the this may be the end of the cheap corn uh, for your average pleb, unfortunately, and that's a shame. Um, but uh, yeah, that that may be where we are. This cycle has so far surprised me in how corporate driven it has been. Um, it'll be a mix, but but yeah, this is. Uh, I I hope it's not, but it may be the last bite at the apple for uh, for the average you know Bitcoin buyer. Well, you say that. Do you know what? And I'm usually I'm usually a pretty sympathetic person, but I've I've done over the last two years I've done a number of panels at conferences. The it's usually like the path to mass adoption, or what do we need for mass adoption? And I've all like for the last year I keep saying we have mass awareness. Like I don't go anywhere now, Andy. When people like if people say to you, "Oh, what do you do?" So you say, "Oh, I, I I wrote a book. Uh, it's a book about Bitcoin." How often do people go? What's Bitcoin? Yeah, not anymore. That has yeah. changed completely, and it and it's even changed in the last couple months. Well, I would from, say. I would say, you know, when people say, oh, "I've got a podcast," and they they're like, "What's it about?" And I say, "It's about Bitcoin." Uh, I never get what's Bitcoin. I get I don't understand Bitcoin, right? But we have mass awareness. Like everyone's had the chance now to research it and look into it. Um, you know, some people discovered it earlier. Some people got it earlier. I discovered it in 2013, and all I did was spend some money on the Silk Road, and you know I didn't probably get it until 17. And I would say it's only like this year, like this last year, I truly get it enough to think I wish I'd put everything I owned into it. Right? Other people have got it earlier, but yeah, everyone's. I think most people have their chance now. It is what it is. It's a free for all, and you know you're rewarded by your risk appetite. And some people, it's too like Ray Dalio is going to pay a lot more than he could have. And then like because he you know he's put it off for so long so i just for me it's just like okay it is what it is i think a lot a lot of people may have missed out on the opportunity to buy cheap bitcoin or relatively cheap bitcoin and profit from it but this may accelerate the move to a uh, bitcoin based society which will be should be could be might not be could be better for everyone but that that we don't know the hyper bitcoinization you know, it's to be seen if that happens, the impact on people. But I just think everyone's had their chance now. Now's the race. Now is yeah. like the global and race. I've got a few thoughts there. One is, you know, why do, why do I Bitcoin? Um, obviously, it's an investment opportunity. Mm -hmm. But it's also what you described, which is, you know, I'm in the same camp as, as the Austrians. You know, I'm in the same camp as Breedlove. You know, the world will be better on a Bitcoin standard. And that will accrue value to everyone. And so it's incremental, you know, whether you get in sooner or later and whether you make a multiple on your, on your investment. And I'm not saying that, you know, I say that, you know, this is the last chance at cheap Bitcoin. I'm also of the view that it, 
you know, the Matt O'Dell view, like it pumps forever. Um, I think it will, or at least for a very long time, it'll go up. And I think there'll continue to be cycles. You know, I'm not too worried, worried in quotation marks, about hyper-Bitcoinization in this cycle. You know, is there some probability that happens? Sure. I think it's, you know, it's somewhat low, but a couple cycles away or three cycles, much more likely. And yeah, it's not, you're never too late. Um, and I'm still tugging on people's sleeves, right? You know, I still send emails, you know, to, to folks saying, look, the reason that I've been a pain in your ass talking about this for the last few years <laughs> is because it's still cheap. Now, you know, we're basically at the all-time high or near it. It's not too late. There's still a multiple ahead. You know, all expectations are for a repeat of the having, you know, bull cycle, the post-having bull cycle. And so I'm not saying it's too late. I'm just saying that... Um, the really stupid cheap Bitcoin, you know, maybe behind us. Now it's, you know, cheaper, you know, still cheap, but uh, but not crazy cheap. So don't wait. So you, you mentioned, you know, conferences and stuff. So I gave a, I gave a talk um, yesterday to the CFA Society of, of Columbus. CFA, you know, is this uh, professional designation. Um, and it's it's no joke. I mean, it's three years of exams. It's, it's pretty hard. The the average pass rate, you know, all the way through is under 10%. Most people fail at least one level going through. And these folks are, I think, finally interested, finally paying attention. Um, they had a shot, you know, they saw it in 2017. They called it a bubble. You know, 90% of them probably ignored it. A few figured it out. But I think now at this point, you know, the smart money, the the legacy finance the guys that were born on the dark side of legacy finance, like me, are finally uh, starting to pay attention. And uh, yeah, I, I'll be I'll be really surprised if we don't see a lot more legacy finance people not only buying it either for themselves, for their funds, for their firms, but also making the the career jump. Right, realizing that this this is the future of finance. This is where the action is. The legacy banking system and financial system is in, you know, slow and painful terminal decline. And I'd rather get out of that. You know, that's not where I want to be for the next 10 or 20 years of my career. Do you remember when you first discovered Bitcoin or heard yeah. about it? So I got the, I got the usual three touch story. Yeah. First 2013, I was on vacation in Eastern Europe. And I had The Economist magazine in audio format, right, podcast format, listen to The Economist, driving um, from, I think it was Czech Republic to uh, to Hungary, like on this little, you know, dusty road in the middle of the uh, Hungarian countryside. And there was an article about Bitcoin, and I totally missed it. But I definitely remember that moment. The second exposure was 2016. Uh, it was actually Ethereum. I, there was an article, I think, in the Wall Street Journal about the about the DAO hack, you know, the hard fork. And then it wasn't until 2017 when I got an email from a friend, I think it was Arun Rao, who had forwarded me info from a friend of his. Um, I think it was Ari Paul, actually, <laughs> who had been pinging people about, you know, crypto. And he's like, hey, look, this guy's running a, a crypto-focused hedge fund. And I was like, What? Like, what is that? There's whole funds, you know, dedicated to this stuff. And um, so that's when I really started paying attention. That was like second quarter 2017. Yeah. So everyone has that kind of three touch thing, which is really interesting. Exactly. I don't remember my first one, but I used to work in like digital building websites and SEO. 
and I can't even tell you when I heard about it first, but I knew I'd heard about it at some point. And then I had like the Silk Road 2013 and then 2017 for me. But I would I would even say, even though I discovered it in 2006, what was, what was it? Six, end of 16 when I was like, I had to buy again, the early 17. I still would say now I've been like, like head headlong into this by doing a podcast it's genuinely Mm -hmm. only the last year or so have really started to click with me but in some ways even the last three or four months a lot of things have fallen into place where i'm like okay i get it because of that okay i get it that makes sense like really started to click for me so we've got these kind of billionaires hedge funds i think they're at that stage where they're like shit i need to get some of this because it's gonna make some money and they're probably going through the learning phase right now, you know, allocating, you know, what is it? Jack Dorsey allocated, was it 50 million? I bet he was thinking, shit, yep. we should have done a lot more. And I think a lot of, a lot of that's going to happen. Yeah, I, that's it. You're spot on. I mean, I still am learning, you know, every day, as you, as you suggested. One of, I mean, the obvious framework here, there's going to be a lot of people who talk about, oh, the pandemic and digitization of everything, you know, and all of us spending our time, you know, staring at our screens, talking through tubes on the internet. That was the catalyst for me. You know, that's when I got the the digital money, you know, was the thing. However, <laughs> as we know, a year ago, you know, when I published my book, all the factors that really drive Bitcoin were really already in place, right? There was too much debt. Um, you know, there, it was clear that the debt was going to have to be monetized. It was clear that governments were, you know, sort of already running big deficits and that was just not going to end well. We were in we were in the later stages of the of the 8-year long-term debt cycle. And um so it was already going to happen, but I think I think what you said, which is a lot of people who had been ignoring it will say, "Oh, for me the pandemic was the catalyst. That's what started me doing my homework." And yeah, that's fine. You know, different people pay attention at uh, at different times. Um, a guy like Sailor, it's interesting. There's the classic tweet, right? It was 2013, right? When he when he downplayed yeah, it, somebody yeah. dug that up. <laughs> some some uh, diligent cyber hornet dug up that old tweet, and so he at least had had that exposure. So I don't know if it was his second or third when he um, jumped down the rabbit hole. He moved quickly. It only took him a few months. Now, considering his background, it's not surprising because a you know, he's a very smart guy, right? You know, he got into MIT on merit, you know, was a was an aeronautical engineering major, what, what most of us call rocket science, um, you know, was running a billion dollar capital expenditure program for a big chemical company at the age of, I don't know, 22 or something. And then he's been in software for a couple decades. He already understood the scarcity value of digital assets, right? Because he's speculated and made money on domain names in the past. And and then he wrote this book, The Mobile Wave. By the way, I just read it. It's really good. Um, he published it in 2012. He does two things. He talks about some history of science and history of technology, you know, and the groundbreaking, you know, things like the printing press, et cetera, et cetera. But then he makes specific predictions about the future. Again, this is from where he was sitting in 2012. A lot of those predictions have come to pass. And when he when he talks about how he made these big investments in the internet giants, I can't remember which ones he said he bought, but he bought the stocks of, I don't know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, you know, maybe Microsoft back in 2012. 
and made a multiple because those stocks have done really well in the last eight years. You know, he understood network effects at this point. I think what's also interesting about his personal history is he was a child of the internet bubble, right, in the early 2000s. And I was talking with Bitcoin Tina about this, and a lot of people got rich and then got ruined. Um, you know, he was, <laughs> MicroStrategy had, I don't know, a crazy multi-billion dollar valuation at, at one point there. Mm-hmm. And then it all crashed. And then he foresaw, he saw what was going on with these network effect-based companies, and he bought the stocks. But he didn't get filthy, stinking rich. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's, he's plenty rich, right? He, he's a multi-hundred million dollar guy. Now he may be, you know, a billion dollar guy with the, with the pump from Bitcoin. But he wasn't, you know, Mark Zuckerberg rich, you know, or Sergey Brin rich. Yeah, or, um, or Jeff Bezos rich. And so I think for him, this is his bite at the apple. This is his shot. That's what I mean. This is his shot to make it really huge, to make it, you know, deca billionaire status. Yeah. And um, this this is what I mean. Like, this is why I said the moonshot, because it's like he's rich enough. Like, he's at that stage whereby, like, he can buy anything he pretty much wants, right? But, like, this is the moonshot to, like, absolutely go and make that, like, top 100, maybe top 10, like, richest people, whatever. I don't know. There might be some Bitcoiners already hold enough that he can't exceed that. But he could still be a top 100, top 50 richest guy. And and also, just, like, somebody who who actually educated and showed people the way of what you could do with this. I think I find find it fascinating what he's doing. And I sit back. It's part intrigue, a little bit of intrigue, see what's going on, but also like in in awe of it uh, at, at some point. I do think, I do think there's a big lens on him now, though, like which is quite interesting. And I feel like we're obviously talking about him. So if he hears this, hi, Michael. But yeah, but, but there's a lens on him now. So I'm sure he will. And there's going like, to be what he there's going to be. It, sorry, I cut you off. There's going to be pushback, right? Like I think it was Citigroup downgraded his stock, you know, last week. Yeah. Um, and they talked about how, oh, he's not as focused on the core business. He's spending all his time on Bitcoin. And, you know, there's some truth to that. I mean, one does have to spend a certain number of hours to crank out, you know, that many podcasts and, you know, all the conference well, appearances, et cetera. Well, in his defense, right, 30 million a year profit, he just made, what, 10, 12 years profit in three months? <laughs> Look, I'm not saying he's doing the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is there are some investors out there who have yet to do the homework on Bitcoin, who haven't figured it out, or or skeptics. Like they'll always be perma skeptics, you know, perma bears. Um we we know and we know and love them in the Bitcoin space, although some have been uh have been hedging their they've been changing their statements a little bit. I loved I loved when Neil Ferguson, you know, in his op-ed in the on Bloomberg a couple weeks ago, uh called out Nuriel called out his quote unquote his good friend Nuriel Rabini right who's basically had to eat, had to eat his words he called it the the greatest conversion since St Paul or something <laughs> <laughs> from 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 no coiner to oh maybe there's something there like maybe it's kind of sort of a store of value wow there's a few yeah, conversions they'll, they'll always be naysayers it's it's when uh, peter shift turns around and says i got it wrong Although I, I got a feeling, like people have been saying, I wonder if he's just sat there on a big ba- ba- pile of Bitcoin. He's trying to get as much as he can. And when it flies out, he's going to go, yeah, look, I had you all. I was holding it. But but Ray Dalio was another interesting one. And I, what I thought he did that was really interesting, you know, he came out with a tweet and said, you know what? 
I could be wrong. I want to understand this. He's clearly gone out and done it. He's clearly, if he hasn't taken a position yet, he clearly is about to take a position. And that's a really interesting conversion. So the thing I'm really interested to watch is that I understand the value of scarcity. Um, but what's going to be really interesting is that what actually happens when there's a supply shock, when there's so many people coming at this, essentially 900 a day and anyone else who's willing to sell, like how mad does this actually go? Because because it really could go kind of like crazy bananas here. Yeah. So my expectation, and by the way, you know, every month or so, you know, I, I jokingly tweet that I've I've checked my my Bitcoin inventory and 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 none are for sale, right? <laughs> There's plenty like me who are are strong-handed hodlers, and we have ideas in our minds where we'll peel some off, right? You know, maybe it's six figure, you know, somewhere in the six figures. But basically, we're not selling between you know here and 100k, so, you know, along that along those lines. It's different for di different people, but that's the basic idea. And then you've got the new investors who are like, "Well, I came in this because I into this because I want to make a multiple, so you know I'm going to make my multiple, or I'm going to see this out." I think you've said that you're you're holding for at least a couple more halvings, or maybe three halvings. I can't three halvings, yeah. I said three um, halvings. I tell I tell you why. Yeah. For like, so for a couple of reasons, I tell you my th uh, investment thesis. So when somebody says to me, like, at what point are you selling? Like, in, during the next cycle, what point are you selling? I'm like, how, how are you meant to know? Like, if it goes to 50K and you sell and then it goes 100K, you're going to be like, oh, I wish I'd held. You, you, you sell 100K and it goes to 300. Ah, you know, I don't know where the top of the market is in this cycle. So I'm like, why am I going to try and play one cycle when I know I don't need the money now? This is essentially my retirement fund, Right. Like, I'm going to play three halvings. I've been through one. I'm going to go through this one, and I'm going to go through the next one. Look, I, I'd maybe sell a small amount here. here. Or I might go, do you know what? Let's go and have a nice holiday, kids. Or I might get me my – finally get my, myself a Lamborghini. But, like, strictly speaking, I don't need the money. Like, it's not going to change my life materially. I have what I need. Me and the kids have what we need. But I'm going to ride this one out. So, yeah, three, three halvings for me. I'm through one. I've got, like – nine years of my thesis to go and this is where you get you know to your original question uh you know what how how crazy could this get you know how far how far could this bull market go and there's two pieces to that one is yeah how how hard are the hodlers hodling and then the other piece of that is is how much capital is flowing in and of course with every four-year cycle your orders of magnitude larger market cap so obviously it takes a hell of a lot more money flowing in, you know, to move from 300 billion to a couple trillion than it did, you know, to get to 300 billion from, from the prior, you know, high watermark. So, you know, the, the analysis that I've seen, which I think makes some sense is people talk about how many incremental dollars are needed to, to result in, in price and market cap going up. And I would say the, the general consensus is, you know, it's between five to ten x or something price move per dollar in. I mean, it depends basically on how hard people are are holding. If nobody wants to sell, then price goes up infinitely, you know, as as money flows in. But as a practical matter, people sell at different prices. You know, facts and circumstances change. There's news events. So, but I do think that you know it's probably you know let's say to get to two trillion, okay, hundred k Bitcoin roughly. 
then that's an incremental, you know, whatever, 1.6 trillion or 1.7 trillion from where we are here. So how much capital has to flow in? Maybe a couple hundred billion. And a couple hundred billion is, is a couple hundred billion. It's not a small amount of money, but in the scale of global capital markets, right? It's not that much money. I mean, you know, stock markets globally are, are tens of trillions of dollars. So are, so are bond markets. I mean, there's, there's at least a hundred trillion of investable, movable, liquid capital that can, you know, sell and, and flow into Bitcoin. And then, of course, there's the uh, there's the potential demonetization of the much larger asset classes like real estate, which mm -hmm. is hundreds of trillions globally. I mean, yeah, so it could get it could get wild. I mean, 6K, you know, sorry. Yeah. Six figure, excuse me, Bitcoin. Very, you know, that's kind of my base case, to be honest, and, and probably overshoot that. You know, does it overshoot to a million? I think that's kind of unlikely, but multi hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin at least for a, for a moment, you know, in the in the blow off top like we had at that 20k last time in 2017, very possible. Very well, possible. there's a lot of people ranging between 2 and 300,000 now. There's a lot of people yeah. I've spoken to ranging between now and then. I mean, I don't know what the blow off would be like. I don't know how much liquidity comes in the market. I don't know how much interest there is then, but what I I read the um Pierre Rochard article, the speculative attack on nakamoto institute mm -hmm. and actually it there, there could be a significant amount of inflow from people just wanting to exit their currencies like i i'm not holding a lot of pounds right now i used to hold a certain amount of uh, savings and also on the you know my podcast is a business on the balance sheet i'm not now i am holding very very low amount because i've there was always that thing it's like money flows to the best currency and it's like bitcoin is and i kind of would repeat it and kind of agree with people like i get it now like i really understand it is and i'm over the uh volatility uh issue like if we're in a bear market it's slightly different but i'm kind of over that issue now so that's going to be really interesting to see what happens and when you say like 200 billion well, michael saylor's done half a percent of that already and MicroStrategy is, <laughs> <Sorry>. a, the, <laughs> is a yes. successful business, but there's a lot of bigger businesses. I mean, just look if someone like Apple went, uh, hold on a second. We're selling $200 billion yeah. melting ice cube. Yep. And, and what you mentioned before about you know people flowing out of other weaker currencies, I, I agree with that completely. And that's kind of, it's part of the beauty of how this could play out, which is the stablecoin angle, you know, the, the basically the stablecoin USD, People, it won't be the dollar, you know, that gets totally wrecked first, right? The dollar will be probably last to go. I mean, I happen to, I, I happen personally to be bearish on the dollar for like the next year, but I'm not talking about like, you know, hyperinflation or anything like that. I'm talking about like, you know, the dollar, the the DXY index could do, go down by, you know, 10 percentage points or something like that's very, it could go from 90 to 80. You know, that's very possible. Right. That's not a disaster by any stretch, but some of these weaker currencies, for sure, people that have phones that can access their crypto wallets, you know, are going to be like, oh, okay, well, Bitcoin has some upside, but also, you know, I can buy this stable coin, as we know, there are several, and that'll sort of, that'll give me protection against short-term volatility, in addition to my protection against long-term volatility that, that may come from Bitcoin. And so, yeah, I see a, I see incremental demand. I see an incremental bid for dollars mm -hmm. over the next couple of years, which which will be very supportive, I think. While yes, yeah, some of those really weak currencies um, 
could suffer. And those are the countries, of course, where you may first see, you know, real significant attempts at clamping down on, you know, crypto in general, whether it's Bitcoin or not. And it, you know, it'd be more probably on the wallets because the the local government will see, oh my God, you know, I was, my, my currency was depreciating 10% a year and now I'm on 40% a year. You know, it looks like Argentina during one of its many depreciations. And so I got to take some action to try to stop people from doing this. Ultimately, that probably won't succeed, but, you know, there'll be plenty of headlines. Well, there'll be plenty of headlines for us to read you know, over the next couple of years as uh, as this plays out. Yeah, that um, wallet to wallet KYC thing. Uh, I was thinking about that. I was thinking, what what what's going on here? What is the interest here? Because the French are looking to do it as well. Is this about tracking, uh, trying to track nefarious characters and criminals and terrorists? Or is actually, is this about knowing where the money is? Because at some point, if they're not getting the tax returns that they need, or if they're not, you know, if their own currency is failing, do they need Bitcoin? And wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be a fascinating scenario where the government's like, shit, we need this Bitcoin. <laughs> they need it themselves, and they want to tax. Well, there's it. still, you know, there's still the minority view. I think it was I think it was Raoul Paul a while ago who said, you know, he thinks it's NSA or CIA or you know, some. Gov- At some point, he stated that he thought it was some government agency that 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 was Satoshi, basically, right, that had launched it. <laughs> I think that's possible, but unlikely. Uh, pretty unlikely. And um, yeah, of course, you know, for me, for me, the obvious move, and I think that seems to be how it's playing out so far, what we're seeing so far is mining, right? In other words, you know, governments, uh, let's say fostering, but also tightly monitoring and or controlling mining operations within their borders are sort of the obvious way, I think, to accumulate Bitcoin, not least because those are, you know, clean coins. Those are relatively anonymous. It's different than, yeah, it's different than, I don't know, the government of XYZ country opening an account with, you know, BitGo or Gemini or whoever else, you know, to both accumulate and custody Bitcoin. And moreover, you know, those professional custodians are mostly uh, Western country, you know, domiciled. So, yeah, if you're a country and you want to accumulate Bitcoin, it seems like the best way to do it is get some mining rigs set up, mm-hmm. you know, tax at the appropriate rate and accumulate uh, accumulate with less visibility there and, 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 yeah, hold your keys at the government level. It's just funny if the government realized, crap, this is a good asset. I mean, look, Venezuelan government have realized this. They've realized it's a, it's a good asset. Yeah. But it's whether, other, like, the U.S. government thinks, hmm, we need some of this, and then it's kind of admitting, admitting that scenario. Um, well, I gone. No, I was going to say, and this is the story. I mean, this is the narrative that all Bitcoiners, you know, we need to we need to promulgate, we need to support. Which is, you know, the proximate story is, oh, rogue nations like Bitcoin, you know, and that's bad. But the real story is, if regulations hadn't been changed appropriately, then as you know, running a website in the United States 30 years ago would have required that you get a license from the FCC, hmm. right? And the internet never would have taken off in this country. And uh, and all these giant internet companies, like them or love them, they've generated huge wealth for the United States and uh, they'd all be European right now. Some of them might be British, <laughs> um, <laughs> honestly. Uh, and so fortunately for Americans, right? Fortunately for uh, for us on this side of the pond, the gov- our government didn't screw that up. They allowed innovation. 
And it's pretty evident, uh, I think, to me and anyone who does the homework, that this is going to be a hugely innovative and value-creating space. We need to not screw this up in the West, mm-hmm. um, you know, not only in America, but ditto Europe. I mean, Europe's got a second bite at the apple here in terms of, you know, the wealth creation of the internet, right? Like, hey, I'm generalizing, right? Like there's a few, or it's a precious few European, you know, software and internet You're giant right. companies. But really, you know, Europe and the UK have, have a shot at, uh, they've got another bite at the apple here. They could get this right. They could allow innovation and growth of Bitcoin, you know, in, in their countries. And uh, that's a competitive advantage. No, I, I agree. I do want to get back to the MicroStrategy thing, just because you put something else out. You put out that tweet where you said you think there's more room on the balance sheet for them to borrow more. So you said they could terminate leases and work from home, issue 10-year bonds at low rates, use proceeds to buy Bitcoin, stock go up, return to step two, clockwise rightwards and leftwards, open circle arrows. <laughs> they got the cheat code. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? They the, got uh... the cheat code. The cycle. <laughs> so what what is it you're actually saying here? Yeah, I mean, I put that out in September. It was about the, right around the same time I had that conversation with Preston Pish on, on Swan Signal. And um, yeah, he's he's doing it. I mean, whether it's in the form of outright debt or whether it's equity, right, issuing stock, or it's the hybrid, that's his recent convertible bond deal where he announced 400 upsized to 550 and has an option to add 100 million, you know, to 650 if investors want to buy it. And what we saw in the first cycle was he announced a new treasury uh, policy. This is back in August. And then did also the tender offer to take out shareholders didn't want to come along. And then bought more Bitcoin and the stock went up a lot. So the first cycle has sort of played out, right? And so he's doing what any wise CEO, you know, shareholder CEO would do, which is, oh, this seems to be working. Let's do some more of this. Um, and that's the second cycle, you know, borrow slash issue to buy more Bitcoin. And we'll see, you know, we'll see kind of how the cycle plays out. I mean, I see an analogy to Grayscale, right, to the Bitcoin trust, which is because it trades with this premium, right, premium to net asset value, you know, a dollar, you got to pay a dollar thirty for a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, if you're just buying it in your brokerage account, that sucks in new money to invest at net asset value, which is locked up for six months, which then exits at the premium. And it's, yeah, it's hoovering up this capital in this sort of feedback feedback loop. And so, yeah, I could see, I see two major self-fulfilling feedback loops sucking in capital and Bitcoin in the market today. One is MicroStrategy, and one is is Grayscale. And Grayscale is bigger and is ahead, but uh, MicroStrategy so far is uh, you know doing its best to to catch up. Is it is there any risk with MicroStrategy if they did keep doing this loop? Is there anything that becomes partly Ponzi about it in that they need the latest round to you know the price to go up for them to be able to pay off the previous loans? Because in the end, like if they did this a few times and it ends up being like you know, not four and five fifty million. It ends up becoming a couple of billion. Yet the you know the uh, the analytics business isn't big enough to borrow against. Is there any risk there that it becomes a little bit Ponzi? Yeah, of course, of course there is. And what's interesting is there's no there's no bright line, right? Mm. I could say the same of the commercial of the commercial property market, for example. 
right? Yeah. Real estate investment trust, REITs, okay? There is no more indebted asset class in the world, right, than, than property. I mean, these are, these are companies that borrow 80% plus of the, of the purchase price of the property um, that they buy, and the price has gone up and up, so they borrowed more and more as they, keep, as they acquire properties. Then you have the shock, right, from the pandemic, and these stocks get absolutely murdered, right? Some of them are down 80%, and some of them will be zeros. I mean, we'll see, we won't know until we figure out how much of the shift to work from home is permanent versus temporary, but that's a case where the price of the asset, which had a bunch of debt against it in a public markets you know, investment vehicle <laughs> has blown up. And so, yeah, could the same thing happen with Bitcoin? Of course it could. Bitcoin goes down by 80% on a regular basis. I'm not saying that it necessarily will this time, but honestly, that could be one of the mechanisms that feeds the extreme price movement that, that you were you know, hypothesizing earlier, which is like, how, how far could this go? And the answer is, well, quite far when you include, yeah, when you include capital markets and you include money flowing in, and in particular, when you include debt flowing in. One of the classic hallmarks of almost all bubbles, investment bubbles, is there's a big debt factor, right? There's a lot of people borrowing. Now, I think it's better that he's using equity, you know, rather than debt, right? Mm -hmm. Or I think it's better that he's using convertible debt rather than pure debt. Nevertheless, yeah, I, there is some level at, one, at which one would be concerned about this. Now, the counter argument would be, yeah, but you know, if, if Bitcoin does what we think it's going to do, it's likely to be multiples higher. He'll easily be able to pay off the debt. And my guess is that he understands the four-year cycle. Mm -hmm. So my guess is that he delevers the balance sheets at whatever, 50K Bitcoin, 100K Bitcoin, whatever the number is. He starts to back off the debt. He starts to pay some of it down. Um, we'll see how it plays out. God, it's so fascinating, isn't it? This like next eighteen months could be absolutely wild. I, I feel like there's, I feel like there's a lot of companies now getting ready to go. What's the kind of like from your experience? What's the kind of like lead time to be able to start making serious investments? You know, but people have heard about MicroStrategy. They're not going to immediately the next week say, okay, let's buy a bunch of Bitcoin. What do you feel like the lead time is? And what are the hurdles that these companies have to go through and can think about? Yeah, I think I think Saylor is right because A, he just did it. And B, he's talked about it. <laughs> I can't remember if he talked about it on your show, but he talked about it on someone's show. And it's, yeah, you know, first is like legal, right? Talk to the lawyers in-house and outside counsel, counsel. Like, do we have the ability to do this? Is this going to run us afoul of the SEC, you know, which is the regulator mm -hmm. in the US? And then the second is, okay, how does the accounting work? Like, do we understand how to account for it? Um, he's talked about this. Uh, I think Square actually published materials on this, right? Jack Dorsey published materials mm -hmm. on on how they went about it. You've got to get, you know, your your CFO and your treasurer on board because they're the ones who are going to actually execute the thing. You have to do your due diligence and then onboard with a, a professional custodian, right? Like you got to decide who, who am I going to hire? Am I going to hire Paxos or am I going to hire BitGo or Coinbase or Gemini or Kingdom Trust or, you mm -hmm. know, any which of these various you know qualified custodians am I going to use to actually um, hold the stuff, and then which exchange am I going to use to accumulate it, or which you know OTC desk or group of desks, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's there's all those steps. I think he said that it took a few months, 
Um, maybe he said it was like six weeks. I can't remember if it was like six weeks to two or three months. Um, and I'm sure he did it in a, you know, in an expedited fashion. You know, he was primed to understand Bitcoin. And once he, once he grokked Bitcoin, you know, I'm sure he wanted to move as quickly as possible. So other companies will probably be slower, I suppose. Some of them, you know, are doing year end work. You know, they're closing the books on 2020. They're saying, ah, this is 2021 business. You know, I'll think about this in January. So yeah, it, it, we'll see. I think it's. I think the 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 fastest someone could follow is a few months. Some a company like Square, obviously, which already had Bitcoin in inventory because they were already selling it. You know, it's easier for them to to get it to get it going. Um, somebody who's not already in the Bitcoin business, not already holding it, it's going to take them a little longer. Do you think with these companies, they're looking at this now and seeing? getting their own kind of like oh FOMO feeling that crap we need to do this quick because the price is at 19 or a lot of these companies do you think they're looking to go it doesn't matter if we do it in three months doesn't matter if it goes to 30 this is you know this is a long-term investment do do companies get their own kind of FOMO I think it's a range and I think it depends by the way I just want to state like you know I don't have a list of you know known companies that I know are in the process of doing this this is you know this is speculation right I Um, I think if I were to say okay what's You do have a list of a known list of companies, public I companies. I know, I know, I know yeah. of Good. some. <laughs> yeah. I should really say. So I think it's a range, and it's going to. And what factors is it going to depend on? Okay, number one, it's going to depend on how uh, familiar management and the board are with Bitcoin. That's number one. Like, how much okay. learning do they have to do? Right? How many? Uh, how many? What Bitcoin did episodes do they need to to let's do to get up to scale? <laughs> Or up to up to speed. Okay. Second is, you know, are they already set up? Like, are they already a financial company? Do they have some, you know, hook into the system already that they basically can get can get, you know, up and up and moving? Another is, how much risk are they willing to take with shareholders? So, if you are, uh, if you have a really successful business, which is already at a very high valuation, right? If you're a software as a service company that's trading at thirty times revenue, okay. Maybe you don't want to upset the apple cart, right? Because your valuation is already so high that you have apparently very bullish, high conviction investor base that is saying, we really like what you're doing and don't screw it up. <laughs> and they don't really want to risk, you know, 20% or 40% of the shareholder base saying, oh, we don't like this move. Like we're at, we're going to dump the stock. So I think it's actually the less successful companies, relatively speaking, companies that are you know, down on their luck. I mean, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit the story of the last, uh, you know, bubble of the 2017 cycle where you had, what was it, Long Island blockchain or whatever. And you yeah, had companies that, that had crappy businesses. They weren't doing that well. They're like, huh, let's pivot to this, you know, to this thing. So I think it'll be, I think it'll be more of that on average. It'll be the, it'll be the dicier, uh, sketchier companies on average, if I had to guess. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, those are some of the factors that would that I would say you know if I was just randomly you know sampling sampling companies out of the hat, which are more likely to to make this move. <laughs> well, listen, man, this has been it's been really fascinating. We've got to do this other show as well. I think we're going to do it in January. Like, how pumped are you then? How are you feeling just generally? Peter, Bitcoin is the most fascinating thing I've ever seen in my life so far. You know, I'm I'm 39. I've been an investor. You know, my whole whole career. This is obviously the biggest asymmetric trade 
you know, investment opportunity I've ever seen in my life. You mm-hmm. know, otherwise I wouldn't have gone to the trouble of, of writing a whole book about it. And I'm excited to see after a long, painful, you know, bear grinding bear market. Yeah, Not that brutal. this one was any more long and painful than the prior one, but but I wasn't in the prior one. So this one I got to feel firsthand. It feels really good to finally see the thesis, you know, starting to play out. It feels really good, you know, starting to hear responses from people that I've been pestering, you know, about for, for years now. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't be more bullish. Yeah, it's... Um... I don't know what else. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, so I mean, my first proper bear market, you know, the last one didn't really count because I wasn't really properly in it. Um, yeah, I had my doubts during it. Did I did I get this wrong? Did I get this? Yeah, I could, maybe maybe this is screwed. Yeah, maybe no one will care. And I think I think you have to go through at least one. Next time I'll be like, okay, how long is this going to take? <laughs> um, but <it's, laughs> that's right. You know what I also think helps, Peter, and I'm. I'm curious your view on this. For me, I think working on Bitcoin made the bear market easier, right? In other words, if I was just if I wasn't doing anything in you know involved in the space, if I wasn't you know writing or podcasting or anything, then I think the time would have gone slower. I think that I would have you know just been watching watching the chart, you know, watching it grind away, having a stiff drink every night, and. Not that it wasn't painful anyway, but I think that working in the space, doing attempting to be doing something productive all the while learning more about it actually made the bear market uh, less painful. Um, yeah. Was that your experience? or? Yeah, and it, but it was also different. So during the last bear market, so in 2013, when I was using Silk Road, I was also uh, trading Bitcoin CFDs on plus 500, right? Um there's a bit of fun. The only <laughs> annoying thing about that is you could be you'd have an open position and they're always leveraged. And you go to bed and you sometimes you wake up in the morning, it's like shit, I've made three grand. This is cool. And then another time you wake up in the morning and you've been wiped out because there were just a sudden liquidity like a sudden like um drop in the price, you get stopped out and you're like, ah oh, f- and it was just like an instant drop. Um so I, and I made and lost a lot of money very quickly, like tens of thousands. I didn't lose in the end, but like I, I was up, but I wasn't as up as much as I could have been. And then I stopped doing it. I never really. The only time I ever owned the asset was actually when when I was on um, using uh, uh, Silk Road. So so what happened was at the end of that, I stopped trading. I was like, this is too emotional. I remember one night specifically, like I lost you know thousands. And I was just like, this feels crap. I feel terrible. So I was like, I'm done. And my uh, my ex at the time said, yeah, you should probably shouldn't do that. And I just forgot about it. I wasn't into the thesis of Bitcoin. I didn't know anything about it. And then what happened is occasionally I'd like look at the price. It's like, shit, it's $800. Crap, is it $500? Oh, is it $300? Oh, this thing's screwed. Oh, it's gone back up a bit. Oh, it's gone up again. Like, And so I just kind of followed that in the distance but didn't really care. But because I work on it like you, like I, I've got a lot of interest and, you know, and, and rather than looking from a distance and going, that thing's screwed. I spent a lot of time kind of like, uh, building my conviction by speaking to like really smart people who understand Bitcoin. So yeah, I, I think you're right now. I, I feel like there's a bit more of an inevitability about it now. Whereas before I was a bit kind of like, Oh, is this going to work out? Is this really going to be all okay? Cause I wasn't too sure. But yeah, I think you make an interesting point there. 
Yeah, you build your conviction. The more you learn, the more you work on it. Um, I think that's been helped. That that helped me get through this bear market. You know, personally, for sure. There's there's no no doubt about it. Yeah, man. Well, listen, this was great. Everything I wanted, hoped, and expected. Um, and I'm really looking forward to doing our other show in. I think we're booked in for January, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Me too. I can see your book in the background. Why buy Bitcoin? Listen, if you listen to this, go and buy his fucking book, man. Go and buy Andy's book. Why buy Bitcoin? It's up on Amazon. How much is it? Uh, look, the the ebook's only ten bucks, and the paperback's fifteen bucks. Listen. Go and buy that book. Um, but I look forward to doing this again with you in January. We'll go into a lot of detail about what you covered in the book. We'll rip another show. And uh, it'll be interesting just to reflect on this one, you know, in uh, in about three or four weeks ago. Shit, where are we now? Yeah, there's going to be so much news. I mean, it's just going to come like a fire hose. Um, look, this has been a blast, Peter. I really uh, I really appreciate it. I look forward to that, uh, to that round two uh, in January with you. All right, brother. Well, listen, if I don't speak to you, well, have a great Christmas. I'm sure I will, but uh, yeah, thanks for doing this. Likewise. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks again. Talk soon. Okay, what did you think of that one? Did you enjoy that interview with Andy? Right. Michael Saylor has had a massive year, and what he's done with MicroStrategy has really shaken things up, and it's kind of ushered in a new era of corporations into Bitcoin. I know from my conversations with him that he has a total conviction with Bitcoin, and he really gets it and he's all in. And this move is really, really next level. It will be really interesting to see how this plays out and if other companies follow suit. I will try and have Michael on again once the deal has gone through so we can discuss this. And I will definitely be speaking to Andy again in January when we discuss his book, Why Buy Bitcoin, which if you haven't checked out, please do go and check it out. Links are in the show notes. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to me, you know I answer every email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Just don't send me any nonsense. And if you want to support the show, head over to iTunes. Takes two minutes. Leave me a review. Hopefully five star if you think I deserve it. If you think the show is shit and you want to leave me one star, I accept that. But hopefully you don't. Hopefully you love the show. Right, also go and check out Defiance. Episode five of Chaos is out. Echo Chambers. That series is coming to a close. We've got one more to go. And yeah, apart from that, have a great weekend. I love you all and I will see you all next week. 